Well, good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you all turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 19? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. Uh, just to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And this morning we're going to pick it up in uh, John 19 verse 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. According to Mosaic law, the corpse of anyone that had been executed by hanging them from a tree, and the Jews considered a cross a tree. Peter mentions this in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. So according to Jewish law, anybody that was executed by hanging them on a tree, uh, the body was not to be left hanging there into the new day. Remember, the Jewish day started at sundown. So at sundown, it was a new day. So God said, you are not to let the body of a person executed by hanging or put on a tree, uh, you're not to let the body stay there into the new day, lest the land be defiled. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 3. But guys, if this was true of a normal day, then it would apply doubly if the next day, which began again at sundown, was a Sabbath, as John, in verse 31, tells us that it indeed was. And as John further points out, the particular Sabbath that was about to begin was especially holy because it was a high or special Sabbath. Now, we all know that the Bible says Jesus was crucified on Passover. Passover fell on the 14th day of the Jewish month of Nisan. The next day, again, which started at sundown, was the beginning of a seven-day feast that took place from the 15th and ran through the 21st of Nisan, a feast known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. According to the commandment of God, when he gave the uh, Feast of Moses in Leviticus 23, we, he talked about this one, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and commanded that it was to start with a Sabbath, and it was to end with a Sabbath, one of these special or high Sabbaths. Now, as we've already pointed out, Besides the weekly Sabbath God commanded the Jewish people to observe, that would be every Saturday, of course, there were seven other special or high Sabbaths that were kind of sprinkled throughout the year. And it was because of one of these high Sabbaths that the Jewish religious leaders wanted the bodies of these three crucified men be buried before sundown. Very religious guys, uh, you know. So uh, one author had this to say, I, and I quote, Nowhere is the ungodly hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders more evident than in their insistence that Jesus' body be taken down before the Sabbath. They had no compunction about murdering the Lord of the Sabbath, yet they were meticulous in not wanting to defile the Sabbath by having his body hanging on the cross into the new day, end quote. Now, guys, because the Romans would, uh, would not allow a crucified man to be taken down from the cross before they were sure he was dead, before they were sure he was dead, 
The Jewish leaders understood that, and so they requested that Pilate order his soldiers. These were great guys, just great guys. They requested that Pilate order his soldiers to break their legs, which was not uncommon, but think about the brutality. Here they're dying one of the most painful deaths ever invented, and because we don't want our holiday ruined, we just got to smash their legs to nice guys. But they wanted these guys dead quickly so that their bodies could be buried before sundown. And this was done with a large wooden mallet, really, just a very big mallet. And they would strike the legs with such force that the tibia and the fibula bones uh, in each leg, these are the major and minor bones that connect the ankle to the knee, um, they would be smashed. You say, why would they want that done? Because it, was hasten, it would hasten death. How would that happen? Well, as we have said before, when a person was being crucified, their body weight began to slump down. They were being supported by the nails in their hands and by the nail that was nailed into both feet and into the cross. And what, what happened is that they would slump down. They were, you know, just drained the body of energy. And so to get some oxygen into their lungs, they would have to pull themselves up by the nails in their hands, their wrists, really, and push themselves up by their legs, pushing against the nail in their legs. And they would do this just enough to get a little air into their lungs, and then they would slip down again. Now, depending on how strong, how young the person being crucified was, this could literally go on for days, for days. In fact, eventually how a person died, they often just smothered to death. They asphyxiation. They, they couldn't breathe anymore. They had no more strength left to pull themselves up, and they couldn't uh, open their lungs enough to take, take some air, and they would just basically die uh, that way. Um, so by breaking their legs, it removed the option of pushing themselves up on the, using their legs on that nail in their feet so they can get some oxygen into their lungs. And so that's what they wanted pilot soldiers to do so that they could, this would hasten the death of these three men. And Pilate went ahead and gave the order um, to have the legs of Jesus and the thieves that were being crucified on either side of him broken. However... John records, verse 32, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they uh, came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now, in addition to hastening the death of a crucified person, according to Bible scholar Alfred Erdesheim, in his classic work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, you can go online, I think it's public domain now, uh, you can download a, a copy of this for your own personal studies. It's a classic, okay? But according to Erdesheim, he said that Rome had another method that they could employ, and often did, to make sure that uh, a crucified criminal died more quickly, or to verify that he had already died, and uh, that would be that the Roman soldier standing by would administer what was called the death stroke. The death stroke. What was the death stroke? Well, it basically consisted of jabbing a spear into the heart 
of the one being crucified to make sure that they wouldn't cheat death, that they wouldn't cheat death. John tells us that when the Roman soldiers came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs because he was already dead. But just to make sure, one of the soldiers administered the death stroke anyway, and this, John said, fulfilled two prophecies. Now, scholars have studied, the. there was 333 prophecies of Jesus' first coming. Over 30 of them were fulfilled on the day of his crucifixion. Two right here. And so we read in verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. John here slips into talking about himself in the third person. And what he is saying is, look, I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. The only disciple left at the cross when Jesus died was John. The other said, fled. Now, some of the women were there, at least four, that we know of, all right? But of all the disciples, only John was there. And John wants his readers to understand, look, I was there. Lest any of you think that he really didn't die, as some people contend, that he only passed out from loss of blood, they thought he was dead, he was taken and put into the tomb, and the cool air of the tomb revived him. It's called the swoon theory. We'll talk about that more a little next time. But John wanted everyone to know, look, I was there. I saw them pierce his side. I saw the blood and the water run out. I am testifying this to you so that you know he was really dead and he did rise from the dead. Verse 36, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. That comes out of Psalm 34 verse 20. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. That comes out of Zechariah 12 verse 10. But guys, I think there was a third prophecy that was fulfilled at that moment. A prophecy that comes out of Psalm 69. Another psalm written by David, but really Jesus prophesying through David about his coming crucifixion, the Lord Jesus, a thousand years before he would go to the cross. And at one point in verse 20 uh, of this prophecy, uh, David, really Jesus speaking through David said, reproach has broken my heart. Reproach has broken my heart. That's interesting because some medical experts believe that under extreme circumstances, it's possible for the human heart to literally burst or rupture from, from emotional strain, causing blood to spill into the pericardium, the sac that surrounds the heart, and mixed with the, the lymphatic fluid, which is 96% water. Many believe that is what happened with Jesus when he died on the cross, that he actually died of a broken heart. His heart ruptured. And that is why when the soldier plunged his spear into Jesus' side, out came blood mixed with water, the lymphatic fluid, again, mostly water. Now, as soon as the victims were dead, their bodies were often, not always, but often removed from the cross. 
and sometimes given to the family for a proper burial. However, if no one stepped forward to claim the body, well, the Romans would toss it into a shallow, common grave. These were graves that were uh, these uh, were graves in which the bodies of the poor and criminals uh, were disposed of. Although sometimes the Romans would simply toss the body into a ditch, where the wild animals and birds would feed on the carcass. Verse thirty-eight. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, the Jewish leadership asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. So first of all, who is Joseph of Arimathea? Where's Arimathea? We don't know. Some think it was Joppa, uh, up the coast uh, somewhat. But we don't know. So who was Joseph the man? Well, Matthew tells us that he was a wealthy man and calls him a disciple of Jesus. Mark and Luke add that he was a member of the council. That would be the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council. Mark says that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a messianic Jew, waiting for the kingdom to be established. And Luke goes on to say that he was a good and upright man who had not, not consented to their decision and action. Talking about the Sanhedrin and how they voted to have Jesus crucified. Joseph did not consent to that. He was not on board with that. So Joseph was a follower of Jesus. Although up until this point, he had been a secret or a closet disciple. Um, Jesus had many back then and still has some today uh, who secretly believed in him. Another of these was a well-known Jewish rabbi and Pharisee that we see John mentioned, Nicodemus. If you remember, Nicodemus was the Pharisee who came to Jesus privately one night and said to him, Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do the miracles that you do unless God is with him. It seems that there was a small group, not many, the Pharisees numbered 6,000 in Jesus' day, but there was a small group of powerful, well-connected men who secretly followed Jesus but were afraid to openly declare their allegiance to him for fear. Um, of the repercussions from the other members of the Sanhedrin who hated Jesus, who were in the vast majority. But you know what? There comes a time when you can be a secret disciple of Christ no longer. And folks, mark it down, we're coming to that time. There's a lot of Christians today, people who are Christians, who love the Lord, but they're closet Christians. Why? Well, because they don't want to lose their friends. They want, don't want people to think badly of them. They don't want to come across as a Jesus freak or a Bible thumper. Maybe they're in a job where the boss is an anti-Christian, and they would like that promotion. And so they keep things quiet. They keep their faith quiet. 
But the Holy Spirit always has a way of putting you in a position where you have to declare your allegiance to Christ if you're a real Christian. Remember what Jesus said? If you declare me before men, I will declare you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. So the Holy Spirit is always working on true Christians to put them in situations where they're going to declare their allegiance to Christ. You know, again, there, there comes a time when, you know, you have to step. The Holy Spirit is going to compel you to step from the shadows into the light and come out of the closet uh, with regard to your Christian faith. I remember when I came out of the closet. Yes, I was a closet Christian, and um, I had just become a Christian. I was still working a secular job, working midnights, you know. And um, so what I would do is I would leave my Bible in my car, and I would, uh, you know, go into the building, and I would relieve the second shift guy. I worked for an oil company. I loaded gasoline trucks, received pipeline product from the refinery, and I was the only guy on third shift. So I had a few things to do uh, when I first got there, and most of the night I was kind of like a night watchman. Now in the morning the trucks started coming in, things got busy. But from about, I don't know, maybe one to five, I had those hours basically to myself. And so I'd bring my Bible out and my tape, my cassette player, dating myself, and uh, I would listen to cassette tapes and study the Bible all night. Well, you know how it goes. It comes to the point when the Holy Spirit tells you, what are you hiding out for? You know? Are you ashamed of me? And so one day I remember, you know what? Time to take a stand for Jesus. I work with truck drivers. If you ever work with, if you are a truck driver, God love you. You're a Christian, so this doesn't apply to you anymore. But I work with guys who are not Christian, truck drivers. And um, God love them. They're a very, well, they tell it like it is. And, and they like to punctuate their sentences with a lot of expletives. <laughs> hey, I was right there with it before I got saved, man. I could cuss the wallpaper off that wall back there. But you know what? When you get redeemed, a lot happens. God redeems your thinking. He redeems your language. Because he's redeemed your heart, right? So I remember walking into uh, work that night with my Bible under my arm. And that started it. And, you know, so the guys really jumped on me. It word spread pretty quickly. Hey, Phil's a Bible thumper, you know? But, you know, God gave me opportunities to witness to them. And, you know, they were pretty good about it. But they, they were brutal at times. They really make fun. But, hey, you know what? You're going to stand up for Jesus as a light in a dark world. Get ready. The world is not going to plot. They're going to go after you. And that's just the way it is. We have to know that going in, right? Uh, and the same was true with Joseph and Nicodemus. As of this point, they can be closeted Christians no longer. And so they go to Pilate openly and ask him for the body of Jesus. Verse 40. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews preparation day. 
for the tomb was nearby. They had to hurry because the sun was setting. And sunset started the new day. And so they wanted to hurry up and get the job done before the sunset. So they just did a quick job. The girls wanted to come back Sunday and finish the job. Do it right. Preparing the body of Jesus and so on. Um, but guys, if Joseph had not offered his tomb uh, to bury Jesus' body in, as I said earlier, the Romans would no doubt have uh, buried the body in a shallow grave in a potter's field somewhere or simply tossed it into an open ditch where the wild animals would have eaten it. And God needed that body. He had plans for that body. But this was in fulfillment, this idea that Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb was in fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah 53, verse 9. I'll read it to you. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, speaking of Jesus, of course, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. That was spoken 750 years before Christ went to the cross. Now, some commentators make a point to say that Joseph took the body of Jesus and embalmed it. Embalmed it. That is absolutely incorrect. The Jews didn't embalm bodies, uh, the bodies of their dead, as did the Egyptians. And so we read again in John's Gospel, verse 39 and 40, uh, And Nicodemus also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds, and they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now, later in John's Gospel, he tells us that these strips of cloth were wound around Jesus' torso, his arms, and his legs, kind of like a mummy. Maybe that's why commentators think that Joseph embalmed him. But hang on to that. They wrapped his body, arms separately, torso separately, legs wound the linen strips of cloth around uh, his body parts. And as they wound uh, the strips of cloth around his body, they would stick in uh, these sweet spices. Uh, why? It would stave off the stench of decomposition. Now, again, the Egyptians embalmed the bodies of their dead to preserve them because of their religious beliefs. They had to preserve the body for the afterlife. That was where they were coming from. That's not a Jewish or a Christian thing. Um, but they did, the, the Egyptians um, embalmed the bodies of their dead to preserve them. But the Jews often put the bodies of their dead into a limestone box or casket, as we would call it, something known as a sarcophagus. Sarcophagus literally means flesh eater. It was made of lime, and lime eats flesh, okay? And the idea was that you'd put the body in this sarcophagus and it would hasten decomposition. Again, the Jews weren't trying to preserve the dead body. They wanted it to decay as quickly as possible. And so they would place the dead into one of these flesh-eating boxes and then put it into the, into the family tomb um, and, and just leave the body alone for a few years until uh, it decayed down to the bones. And then they would take the bones, they would remove it from the sarcophagus, the bones, and place these bones into a small stone box known as an ossuary, sometimes called a bone box. Why? 
Why'd they do it? Because a lot of people were too poor to have a big burial chamber. If you were loaded, I mean, certainly you had a big, you didn't have to worry about space. But these tombs were for your entire family. And they all lived together. Extended families living in the same complex oftentimes. And so when they died, they wanted to keep the family's bones together. So this, of course, taking just the bones now, you could greatly reduce the size of the box, the ossuary, put the bones in there, and then just place it on the shelves of the family tomb. And this would uh, help them to maximize their space in these tombs. And then, of course, the ossuary would remain in the family tomb along with the other family members' remains. Now, I want you to turn to Matthew 27 because we've exhausted now John's narrative on what happened when Jesus was crucified. So Matthew 27, and let's pick it up in verse 59. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth, those strips we talked about, and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Now, there is a debate that has gone on for a long time about where Jesus was really buried. Was he buried where the Church of the Sepulchre was built, or was he buried in what was more recently discovered uh, called Gordon's Calvary and the gravesite that uh, was discovered by him. Um, when the garden tomb was discovered in 1867, it was discovered by a very godly Christian, actually, a very godly British officer named General Gordon. Now, when his team first uncovered it, they thought it was a cave. and uh, But on further examination, they realized, no, this wasn't a cave. This is a, because in Israel, there's a lot of caves. It's, it's it, it, you know, just, you, know, you, you think you found a cave. That would be what you would assume, right? But on further examination, they realized, no, this was not a cave. It was a hand-hewn burial chamber, a hand-hewn burial chamber that had been carved out of the side of the mountain there. And um, they knew it was a, a wealthy man's burial chamber because it had two compartments to it. That was a t common design for those who were wealthy, two compartments. Um, and, um, and, and so that's, they, they immediately said, look, it, it's a hand-hewn burial chamber, and it seems like it belonged to somebody who was wealthy. One author gives us a little further information on what took place when they found this tomb. He said, and I quote, when the garden tomb was discovered in 1867, the godly General Gordon was convinced that this was the place where the body of Jesus had lain. The garden tomb, hidden for centuries, was covered with rubbish 20 feet high. When they first cleared the spot, with great caution, they gathered all the dust and debris within the tomb and carefully shipped it all to the Scientific Association of Great Britain with this question. Are there any traces of decomposition in these samples? After everything was carefully analyzed, they sent word back to General Gordon saying, after carefully examining the samples you sent us, we have concluded that there is absolutely no traces of human decomposition or decay in them, end quote. If this is the real tomb of Christ, then Jesus was the first to be laid there 
and he was also the last. Or as one pastor put it, he came into the world from a virgin's womb, he came forth again from a virgin tomb. And so Joseph had his servants, because he was a wealthy man, lay the body of Jesus in his own tomb. Verse 60 says, And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. This was the customary way to seal an expensive tomb with one of these large, flat but round stones. And um, typically in, the, in these wealthy tombs, um, they were designed to have a small entrance where you'd have to stoop to get in. We'll see that was exactly the case with the tomb Jesus was buried in. Uh, we'll see that next time. Um, so you have to stoop to get into the tomb, and the door of the tomb was typically made of a heavy circular stone. Think of a, a large Flintstone car tire, you know, round but flat. However, this was not a small stone. It weighed between three and 4,000 pounds. And the stone rested in a groove or a channel uh, long enough to allow the stone to be rolled back and forth depending if you needed to enter the tomb or you wanted to seal it closed again. Now, the tomb, the, the tomb that General Gordon discovered does have a, 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 a channel in the ground right, that leads right in front of the tomb. The stone is gone, uh, but the channel is still there, all right? But it was a big stone, weighed a lot of, a lot of pounds. And so needless to say, it took several strong men to move the stone, which is why we read in Mark's gospel that very early on Sunday morning, when some of the women were making their way to the tomb to finish preparing Jesus' body for burial properly, they were talking among themselves. Who's going to move the stone for us? I mean, how are we going to get into the tomb? You know, you know, we can't move it. It's too heavy for us. But yet when they got there, what, happened? what had happened? God moved the stone. God moved the stone. You know, so often in life, we worry about things coming down the road. And we're praying, but we're worried. And when we finally get to whatever we are worried about, we realize God's gone before us. He's taking care of it. Stop worrying. Jesus said every day is enough worry in and of itself. Don't add tomorrow and next week and next year. Sufficient for the day is, uh, you know, just every day is enough you can worry about if you're a worrier. But just keep casting all your cares on Jesus. He cares for you. He's, he's got it covered. I don't have to worry about it. He's going to take care of it. He's promised to take care of me. He's promised to take care of you, right? And so Joseph laid the body of Jesus in his new tomb. And it says he rolled the stone over the opening. Obviously, he's talking about he ordering his servants to do that. Uh, and so he rolled the large stone over the opening, or you know, and he departed. Look at Matthew 27, verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver, can you imagine calling the Lord Jesus Christ a deceiver? Can you be, imagine how much you have to be deceived 
to think you, as a child of Satan, is the good one. And those who belong to Jesus are the evil, deceiving ones. I pray God turns their thoughts around. Because they're not going to want to, it's not going to be, I say pleasant. It definitely won't be pleasant when they see him on the road uh, in heaven. I'm thinking of Paul, how Paul saw him on the road to Damascus. At that time he was Saul. Thought he was serving God. Got to wipe out this cult called Christianity. I'm going to Damascus, and I'm going to bring these rebels home. And they're going to stand trial in Jerusalem. And he's going to Damascus, and all of a sudden the Lord Jesus, in a bright light, knocks Paul to the ground and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I can imagine Saul thinking to himself, don't, don't say it's Jesus. Don't say Jesus. Who are you, Lord? It's Jesus whom you are persecuting. And Saul had one of those moments where his whole life was spun around. Going full blast one direction, thinking he was right, thinking he was serving God. Hits a brick wall called Jesus. Knocks him to the ground. Converts him. Stands up. Spins him around the other way God did and fires him out. 100 miles an hour now is one of the greatest champions of the cross that has ever lived. But look, Pilate, we know this. that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. Verse 64. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, the body, and say to the people, he is risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, even though the chief priests and Pharisees didn't believe in Jesus, they did remember something he had told them when they demanded he give to them a sign, proving once and for all that he was the Messiah. And you remember what he said to them in Matthew 12, verses 39 and 40. He said, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And they recognized that to be a prophecy that he was going to rise from the dead. And again, these men didn't believe that Jesus was going to really rise from the dead. They didn't believe in him at all. What they were afraid of was that Jesus' disciples would come and steal his body and claim that he had risen from the dead which would have been, in their minds, the greatest deception of all. Now, let me uh, just say this as we wind things down. Put yourself for one second in the disciples' shoes. And I know only John was really at the cross when Jesus died, but the other disciples knew what was going on. They were in hiding because they feared Rome was coming after them next. But God bless the women. They were out in the open, you know? These ladies were afraid. They wanted to be with their Lord to see him. If he was going to die, we, they wanted to be there. And can you imagine the sorrow that Jesus' disciples, including the women who were by the tomb that day, must have been feeling? I mean, their hopes were crushed. Their hearts were broken. Guys, this is often how we feel when life seems to throw us a curveball. And all we feel in that moment is that our hopes are crushed, 
and our hearts are broken for whatever reason. For whatever reason. At that moment, Jesus' followers knew only sorrow. But in three days, that sorrow would be turned into great joy. They didn't know it at that time. They would soon realize that Jesus' final words from the cross, it is finished, was not a cry of defeat. Oh, it's over. My ministry's done. What a cruel way to die. It's all lost. No. His words, it is finished, really gave rise to a brand new beginning. His ministry and life hadn't come to an end. Along with their hopes and dreams, they would soon realize that would seem to be the greatest defeat, the greatest sorrow in human history, would turn out to be one of its greatest joys. It reminds me of the words of an old preacher, an old black preacher who preached it well on this Sunday. Let me read it to you. He said, It's Friday. Jesus is arrested in the garden where he was praying, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are hiding and Peter's denying that he knows the Lord, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is standing before the high priest of Israel, silent as a lamb before the slaughter, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is beaten, mocked, and spit upon, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Those Roman soldiers are flogging our Lord with a leather scourge that has bits of bones and glass and metal, tearing at his flesh. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The Son of Man stands firm as they press the crown of thorns down into his brow. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See him walking to Calvary the blood dripping from his body. See the cross crushing down on his back as he stumbles beneath the load. It's Friday, but Sundays are coming. It's Friday. See those Roman soldiers driving the nails into the feet and hands of my Lord. Hear my Jesus cry, Father, forgive them. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is hanging on the cross, bloody and dying, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The sky grows dark. The earth begins to tremble. And he who knew no sin became sin for us. The holy God who will not abide with sin pours out his wrath on that perfect sacrificial lamb who cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What a horrible cry. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. And at the moment of Jesus' death, the veil of the temple that separates sinful man from holy God was torn from top to bottom because... Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus is hanging on the cross. Heaven is weeping and hell is partying. But that's because it's Friday and they don't know it. But Sunday's coming. And on that horrible day 2,000 years ago, Jesus the Christ, the Lord of glory, the only begotten Son of God, the only perfect man died on the cross of Calvary. Satan thought that he had won the victory. Surely he had destroyed the Son of God. Finally he had disappeared disproved the prophecy God had uttered in the Garden of Eden, and the, uh, and the one who was to crush his head had been destroyed. It was Friday, but praise the Lord, Sunday was a coming. Folks, I don't know what each of you are going through right now, today. It may seem like Friday. 
It may seem like everything in your life is crashing down. Your hopes are dashed. Your heart is smashed. But I can assure you, I can assure you that Sunday's coming. What am I talking about? The rapture. Not the resurrection of Jesus. That was 2,000 years ago. But his resurrection made another resurrection possible. The resurrection of all his saints, his church. And when that resurrection happens, you are going to jettison every bad experience, every heartache. You're going to enter into an existence where there will be no more sorrow or tears or suffering or death. It will be nothing but joy unspeakable, full of glory. If you're a child of God this morning, let me just say this to you. It's our responsibility to use our time in this earth for his glory. Not my own, not your own, but for his glory. Live for him. Make your life count so that someday when you stand before him, you'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, enter into the joy of your Lord. And while you're on this earth, realize that time is short. And the only thing that really matters, folks, the only thing that really matters are the people that God has placed in your life. The people, not the things, the people. Cherish them. Be thankful for them every day. And do that by living a good life that loves people and honors God. Let me end with a poem I came across that tries to capture this profound truth. How that love the people that God has given you in your life. And don't fall into the trap of materialism. It's a trap. The Bible talks about the deceitfulness of what? riches. Let me read this poem to you. Maybe you've heard it. it. tries to capture this profound truth. It's simply called The Dash. The Dash. It goes like this. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone, the beginning and the end. He noted with joy the date of his birth and then spoke of the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that a person spent on earth. And not only those who love them know what that little line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. What matters is how we live in love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that can still be rearranged. If we could just slow down enough to consider what's true and real and always try to understand the way other people feel and be less quick to anger and show appreciation more and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. If we treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering this special dash 
might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent and lived your dash? Father, we thank you for the life you've given us in our Savior. I know that my life was nothing but emptiness and futility before I knew you, Lord, chasing after the things of this world. It was all emptiness and futility and vanity. But when you entered my life and all of our lives, you made us new creations. You gave us purpose and meaning to our life. And you sent us out to be light in a dark world. And Lord, we thank you. And we know that in a very short time, this dark world is going to be replaced with the kingdom of God when Jesus comes and establishes that kingdom. Until that time, Lord, give us grace that we would live our lives in such a way as to always bring you glory. That, Lord, we would not waste what this poet calls our dash because it's everything. It's a life, our whole life, lived upon the earth. And when we die, we want to stand before you and hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. Now come, enter the joy of your Lord. We thank you, Father. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. <laughs>